Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. For the second time in just a couple of weeks, I have the pleasure to have the book author uh, live to have a conversation with. And so this week, uh, when I talked with uh, Daniel DeSalvo, who's the author of Government Itself, sorry, Government Against Itself, Public Union Power and Its Consequences, published by Oxford University Press in 2015, uh, Dan and I were in uh, person to have the conversation. I hope that you enjoy the conversation that I had with him. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, today we're talking with Daniel DeSalvo, who's the author of Government Against Itself, Public Union Power and Its Consequences. Dan, how are you doing? I'm well. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you here as a colleague within the CUNY system. Uh, only the second time I've had the chance to interview someone who's written a book who's also a uh, close professional colleague here. Um, before we talk about the book, let's talk about who you are. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm, I'm Dan DeSalvo. I'm a professor, assistant professor of political science at the City College of New York, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. So... Um, I know about you, and I've read parts of the book um, that deal with sort of your personal side of this. And so let's sort of like put that one out there first, because it is probably the first thing that people talk about when they hear about your book. So let's clarify something. Um, did you write this book to as a union takedown? Are you simply anti-union? Um, no, and I'm glad you asked that right away. And I thought you were actually going to touch on another personal uh, element, which... Um, the publishers wanted in the book and is is also true, which is that I come from a, a union family, which was my father uh, was in the carpenters union, my grandfather was in the, the steel workers union in, in Pittsburgh, and in that sense, I'm I think coming in, my own experience um, partly was maybe one small motivation for this book being part of a, a union shop here in City University um, was part of my interest in the subject. Um, and I don't really come out as being anti-union. I don't really deal with private sector unions uh, really at all. Um, I think that's another subject. It's been very, very well treated by political scientists and economists. Um, my uh, analysis is really focuses on public sector unions, and that includes ones to which either you, you and I are members or pay dues to, uh, which represent people that are relatively affluent with PhDs in some cases. So I would say that this is a more nuanced take. It's really just about public unions, not about private unions, and it doesn't really involve the kind of anti-union element that uh, is sort of easy to re- be reductive and label people. Yeah, because you and you write about this in the book, um, just some of the feedback you've gotten, um, which most of us just never never in the position to get. And so I would encourage people to read the book, but also to read these other, I don't know if it's just in the, it's in the acknowledgement section, where you talk a little bit about some of these interactions you've had with colleagues and people who support you in other ways. And, well, we'll talk about maybe some of the reasons why right. they've taken the, some of the, the viewpoints that they have. They probably haven't read the book, I guess is what um, my point is. So why now? 
Why is this book a particularly important book to have written, given the financial circumstances of the country? What's the what's the timeliness of the subject matter? Well, I think the, the book is obviously uh, very timely, um, not really by design on my part, stri- strictly by good luck, um, which is I got into this issue um, intellectually and then from a scholarly uh, point of view prior to the Great Recession, really prior... And, in that sense, I started writing about this before Wisconsin, and then this issue really exploded on the national stage um, with the passage, uh, the fraught passage of Act 10 in Wisconsin, and that brought a lot of attention to public employee unions. So then since the recession, all of the problems in state and local finance related to um, legacy costs for pension and health care for public employees have really started to make headlines and get a lot more press attention the political dynamics around public labor relations have completely changed by the recession. And I think, so in that sense, it's timely because as the tide went out with the recession, this issue came to light in a way that it hadn't been before. And then I'd also add that from a scholarly perspective for you know your academic audience, um, we just don't have a lot of scholarship dealing exclusively with public sector unions um, as their own unique kind of labor organizations or their own unique kind of interest groups. We've got lots of books on private sector unions, but very little on the public sector itself and its different characteristics and properties. So I think the book fills a really big gap in our understanding of both the labor movement um, and the interest group universe. Yeah, and let's talk about that because you've alluded to it a couple of times. It's really important for the book, which is uh, rhetorically people rarely distinguish between private sector unions and public sector unions. And that gets in the way of um, the kind of nuanced analysis that's necessary. So walk us through just some of the differences, some of the important differences between the way a private sector union functions and the way a public sector union functions. We'll then talk later about how this relates to politics, but just sort of from a background, or how do we really distinguish these two? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the big points of the book right out of the gates is that um, political scientists, economists, to some degree sociologists, we've been making an analytic mistake by not separating and distinguishing public from private sector unions. So how are they different? The first is their historical trajectories are very different, which is private sector unions really uh, exploded on the national stage in 1935 with the Wagner Act. They hit a high point after the merger of the AFL-CIO in the mid-50s, and then since the 1970s have suffered steep declines. Public sector workers, on the other hand, were hardly unionized in the 30s and really weren't unionized in most places until the 1960s and 70s, and by the end of the 70s it really shot up to representing about 35% of all public employees across the country, and they've been pretty steady and stable at that level ever since. So you've got very different trajectories in terms of membership. Second, there's different sources of law. Private sector unions are governed by federal law, the Wagner Act, as modified by Taft-Hartley and Landrup Griffin, and but the public sector is governed not by federal law, but by an ensemble of state and local laws, so there's lots of variation and difference in the practices of states and cities around the country. 
Third, the big difference is that public employee unions can win things directly through their for their members in two ways, what I call the two bites at the apple. They can win things directly at the bargaining table through collective bargaining, or that failing through political activity, um, meaning electioneering and lobbying, whereas private sector unions can really only win things directly for their members through collective bargaining. Sure, they're engaged in politics, but that's for broader purposes. And that differentiates public sector unions also from other interest groups, which only can electioneer and lobby and don't get to collectively bargain. The next difference is that public sector unions can exercise at least some influence on both sides of the bargaining table in a way that private sector unions can. Through their political activity, that is donations to campaigns, whether that's hard money, soft money, or in-kind contributions, they can kind of create chits that they can call in with elected officials who are in effect going to be acting as management. Where, as in the private sector, if you're the machinist union at Boeing or you're the airline stewardesses union at American Airlines, you have no say over who the CEO or the CFO of those major corporations are. And in that sense, the last big difference is that collective bargaining in the private sector takes place where there's market forces at work, pressures on companies, pressures on the unions themselves, and that really changes the dynamic in a multiplicity of ways, whereas in the public sector, it's much more like collective bargaining in uh, monopoly industry, meaning government is really the monopoly provider of many goods and services, and that changes the dynamic of collective bargaining. Um, and on each one of these points, I'm sure that you have debated extensively about, about uh, um, sort of how important these differences are, which we're not going to debate right now, because what, one of the things that I'm very interested in as someone who studies interest groups is the extent to which unions operate like interest groups. So what are some of the things that, that unions, public unions, have tried to get through the political process, not through the, the, the bargaining table, but in the way that other interest groups have, have worked. Um, what are some of the, the, the successes that they've had, either at the national level or, or at the state level? Well, I think it's helpful to think about the political or lobbying agenda for public employee unions. Again, partly it starts out with their own direct self-interest in many cases, which is lobbying politicians when it comes to things that are going to be treated in collective bargaining, salary, for example, work rules. But this also spills over into benefits. When this is a slightly technical debate, which we can talk about mm -hmm. the, the scholarship in this area, but pensions and health care. Pensions, for example, are not collectively bargained in most places, uh, states and cities across the country, but public employee unions have often lobbied extensively for to defend or sweeten or expand the, the ben defined benefit pension schemes. Um, public employee unions often work to uh, inform different kind of work rules. Think of things like in here in New York State, last in, first out laws for teachers. That is, if you're the last one hired, you'd be the first one fired. It can sometimes be enacted directly into law. Um, in some cases, caps on the number of charter schools, sticking with the teacher examples. Um, so you can see big victories there. The tenure process for teachers, which is a law in many states, that's a, a really important and valuable work rule to providing extra job uh, protections for teachers. That's an area where you can see the political power um, and the part of the lobbying agenda. Beyond winning things directly for their members, and we could multiply the examples of, uh, of potential victories, 
public employee unions, for the most part, are in some ways today, in many places, really honeycombed into the Democratic Party and the broader liberal coalition. Um, so to give you one example, it's often um, cited that the uh, teachers' unions have repeatedly, over time, bailed out financially uh, the NAACP. And they're often form alliances that push for larger goals like uh, the minimum wage and larger parts of the liberal agenda, higher taxes on the wealthy. Um, so in that sense, you can see that they're really a bigger, larger lobbying agenda that looks pretty familiar to the sort of major liberal democratic agenda. Yeah, and education comes up here, and one of the things that it seems to be the case is that much of the story you're telling isn't about education, but it is at the same time. How, how big a part of this story are teachers, teachers' unions, and the issues that they care about? Um, how much of this story is an education story? A good part, and that's in part because this is a story partly about because public sector unions are governed by state laws, supplemented by local ordinance, and when we think about, in some sense, the main thrust of my argument is that allowing public employees, including teachers, cops, firefighters, uh, all the rest, to collectively bargain and have a whole variety of union security provisions. I think this key claim of the book is this really weakened state capacity. That is the state's ability to penetrate society, to do things, to provide goods and services at a reasonable cost. So if we're thinking about the state in America and where people are going to rely on and interact with government, it's going to be at the state and local levels. This is much more a federalism story than it is a story about the national government. Now to teachers. Teachers are obviously a huge percentage of the state and local government workforce, which is to say that out of the, um, it varies and changes, but let's say the roughly 15 to 17 million state and local employees, teachers are going to constitute um, not quite half, but just a little bit shy of half. That is, they're going to be around six or seven million uh, employees, depending on how you count school aides and other things. So, And they're, of course, in every district, in every place, spread evenly across the country. And the teachers' unions are obviously very powerful at all levels of government. Um, So this is a big, important story. Uh, Education is one of the central public goods that government has provided, and the U.S. prides itself on being one of the first to adopt uh, broad public schooling. So this is, I would say, a big part of the story just because teachers uh, and education policy loom so large in what state and local governments do. Yeah, the, the other big sort of story is California. California is a big story in any book that takes on state local level issues. So I wonder if you could characterize the impact um, public sector unions have had on California, California policymaking. Are there uh, directions that the state has turned that they, the state might not have turned without the influence of certain unions. How is California shaped by the role of public sector unions? That's a great question. Uh, California does loom large. It's, you know, obviously geographically one of the biggest states. Population-wise, it, it is the biggest state. Uh, has 12% of the uh, total uh, population of the United States. Um, 
the size of its annual budget is, is huge, is larger than most other countries in the world. Um, so in that sense, California is a really big and important story. Um, and it also has some unique features, uh, particularly its initiative and referenda process. And I have a chapter in the book that looks specifically at the role of public sector unions in that process. And to give you one example of how they've shaped things, the California Teachers Association uh, was able to put on the ballot a uh, very famous uh, initiative that basically mandates that the state spend 40% of its annual general revenues on education policy. At the same time that the teachers union has negotiated a whole range of work rules and protections that means that in general California uh, spends a, a lot on education but now it's spending less than other states and California schools are seen as not performing well, especially against other big states like Texas. So I think we see that story of sort of state capacity playing out in the case of California schools. Another big example I treat in the book is the power of the Corrections Officers Union, which has really transformed the character of uh, punishment, incarceration, um, and crime, uh, policing attitudes in California. Um, just to give you some examples, the number of prisons constructed has grown fantastically. The uh, number of inmates has grown. The union itself lobbied for what was called the three strikes law, which would, of course, mandate that people be incarcerated on the third uh, felony conviction, which, of course, inflated the prison population and created more jobs for guards, more union dues, um, which Justice uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy called sick. Um, so... I think when we look at prisons, when we look at schools, um, and if we look at state and local budgets where um, unions have been very influential in expanding the pension payouts and influencing what CalPERS does, um, the problems in California are really related to some of these really big legacy costs. So um, what to do? Um, what can be done, or what are you recommending could be done, um, either to address the influence, um, there's a whole set of things one might think about in that area, um, legislatively, what, what do you recommend? You know, sort of put on your hat of, of, of um, wonk and, and, and tell us what you at least recommend uh, be done, if, if anything. Well, I don't spend a lot of time, admittedly. This is mostly a book of uh, analysis um, that tries to tell the story of uh, how we got public employee unions, the political coalitions that created them, then how much power they have, and then what are some of the policy consequences that flow from that? That's the bulk of the book. But I do try to take up this issue of what might be done in the, in the final chapters. I think the first thing to note is, of course, because this is a federalism issue in many cases, there's a lot of variety. Different states are really in different places. They might want to tackle different things first. Um, they might want to, say, do what was done in Wisconsin, which would be restrict the subjects of collective bargaining. That could be one kind of policy lever. Other states are confronted with other more pressing or immediate problems dealing with their uh, public labor practices. Take uh, Illinois or Chicago has a huge pension problem. That's got to really be addressed first before anything about the union's power is probably taken up. In, here in our home state of New York, I think reformers might want to look at something like the Triborough Amendment, um, which, without getting into too much detail, stipulates uh, that when a union contract expires, they're forced to come back to the bargaining table. They can affect their old contract will stay in effect indefinitely until a new contract is 
uh, is bargained, and this gives a privileged position, many have argued, to organized labor and bargaining. So teachers unions and other city unions here in New York during the recession and in the third term of Mayor Michael Bloomberg decided they weren't going to get a good deal, so they just stuck with their previous contracts, getting their step raises annually under their salary schedules, and simply waited it out until the budget picture got better, a new and more uh, pliable mayor was elected, and then they negotiated a contract. Um, So that has a slow but long-term ratchet effect on the costs of New York State government, maybe reformers might want to take up the Triborough Amendment. It's been a perennial issue in the state legislature, but those are just a few of the kind of small examples one could take, but I think, again, variety is the order of the day. Yeah, so the book is out, and you've been talking about it in lots of different places. What's next? Is there a next book from you, a, a book project that is either on your desk now or, or you're, you're hoping to get to now that the book has been published and you've fully talked about it? Um, always the dreaded question for all academics, what's your next project? Um, I think in my case the, the, the natural next project, if I get to it, if someone else doesn't scoop me uh, first and do it first and, and hopefully better, um, would be to really take up this question of the changing politics of public employee legacy costs which is to say that, you know, there's good work I cite in the paper, uh, in the book, that, you know, what we've seen is prior to the recession, you could think about three stages of what's happened to state and local public employee pensions and health care. Um, one period was when these things were first enacted. Um, defined benefit pensions came into existence, what the formulas were like. A second phase, really beginning in the 60s and 70s, when these formulas were sweetened, they became much more generous to the situation where we are today, where people are living longer, these uh, plans cost uh, uh, much, much more. They Relative to the size of state and local budgets, they're just huge. Um, and then in this last stage, since the recession, we've seen that you could say, Prior to the recession, this was pretty consensual, pretty out-of-sight politics, not a lot of partisan politicking, Democrats favored expansion, Republicans generally went along. Since the recession, that equation has really changed. Democrats are really divided over this because they see it as constricting the ability of the state to do things. Think of sort of Rahm Emanuel versus Bill de Blasio. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, on the Republican side, they're under pressure from Tea Party and other groups to behave more like conservatives on this issue. And the unions themselves, you could say, may be more divided going forward. That is, the judge's decision in the Detroit bankruptcy um, opens a sort of new window into this. So some of these issues are touched on in the book, but they really deserve a fuller treatment. So the sort of the politics of legacy costs might be another future project. Yeah, and, and um, well, we look forward to that project when it, when it comes out. Um, until then, Government Against Itself, Public Union Power and Its Consequences, published uh, by Daniel DeSalvo this year, uh, Oxford University Press. Is it 2015 or 2014? 2015. 2015, available, I'm sure, at the Oxford University Press website and on Amazon. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure.